Yes, I think everyone's perfectly framed now. And my cat is locked upstairs this time, so <laughs> no Gatsby cameos. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Americans are exhausted, especially when it comes to COVID-19 and former President Trump. Americans do not want to hear about either anymore, according to the results of a recent poll from Axios. And you guessed it, on today's show, we're going to ask if that is a good or bad use of polling. But good or bad, the last few years of news has been exhausting. In 2019, before COVID even hit, two-thirds of Americans said they were worn out by the amount of news these days. So we're going to discuss what effect this exhaustion has on our politics and our country. And if we have any energy left, we're also going to take a look at the year ahead in politics. We are in a midterm election year, maybe you've heard. And this fall, voters will decide control of both chambers of Congress, state legislatures around the country, and 36 governorships. So what do voters care about most? And what are the best indicators to look at to understand the political environment? Here with me to discuss all that are politics editor Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Galen. Hey, y'all. Also here with us, politics and tech reporter Kaylee Rogers. Hey, Kaylee. Hello. And senior elections analyst Nathaniel Rekich. Hey, Nathaniel. Hey, Galen. How is everyone doing? We're like a week into the new year. How do people feel about 2022 so far? I got my booster on the weekend. Congratulations. Oh. We love to hear it. So Feeling good about that. <laughs> 2022 so far has been the year of the Wordle. So yes. it's great in my book. I haven't played yet, but I've seen it all. Of- yeah, I'm with the you, Sarah. Wordle. You haven't what? heard of it, Sarah? Sarah, oh. we're obsessed. How are you not playing Sarah, Wordle you're yet? so behind the times, man. I know. I often am. This is a like <laughs> word game, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. With the green yeah. and yellow squares. Yes. There's a whole channel <laughs> in the 538 Slack devoted to Wordle. It is the hot place to be. Have you been paid by Wordle to be micro-influencers? Are you just trying to spread the Wordle word? <laughs> spread the Wordle. I wish. I mean, I know. Hit Get me in up, touch, Wordle. wordle. <laughs> okay, can someone explain it in 30 seconds for those who don't know? So it's like Mastermind, if people have played that, but basically you guess a five-letter word and it'll tell you whether any of the letters are in the right place or whether any of them are in the wrong place but elsewhere in the word. And then you have six tries to guess what the word is. And all yeah, you know good. is that it's a five-letter word? Mm-hmm. Right. Is there at least a category? any five-letter word. Nope. <laughs> So you just Whoa. have to choose a random five-letter word and then kind of use process of elimination to figure out what words match the letters that, that they said is right. Oh, so you get the letters. It's like a word jumble. Gradually, like through your own kind of guesses. Yeah, I mean, guess. the letters oh, are I the see. alphabet. Yeah. Okay, so it's like hang <laughs> There are 26 choices. <laughs> yeah. Wow, this sounds like something I'd be really bad at. But also it sounds like something I'm curious to check out. Anyway... Let's move on and ask our favorite question, good use of polling or bad use of polling. Axios and Momentive, formerly known as SurveyMonkey, recently conducted a poll asking Americans about their thoughts on the past year and the year ahead. The poll offered respondents nine words to describe the year that they had in 2021 and asked people to select all that applied. So the universe was these nine words, but you could pick all nine if you wanted to. The poll was not open-ended. So the words in order of most commonly chosen to least were exhausting, worrisome, chaotic, hectic, hellish, great, meh, awesome, epic. The Axios write-up of the poll reads, quote, choices of the best words to describe 2021 suggested fatigue. Exhausting was at 43%. Worrisome was also at 43%, and chaotic was at 31%. So for some comparison, the least chosen word, epic, was at just 5%. So is this a good use of polling or a bad use of polling? I think this is a bad use of polling. For one, I mean, as you mentioned, the list of adjectives that they gave people was ridiculous. Five of the nine were negative in some way. One of them was meh which is not even a word. It just doesn't actually quantify anything. And I think we can all kind of sense a growing fatigue among people, whether it's news fatigue, COVID fatigue, whatever it may be. I think there's got to be a better way to measure that than like, here's a list of a bunch of random words that, as Galen, you mentioned, thought would make a great headline. And how much do you agree with them? I also wonder about 
wouldn't this apply to every year? Isn't every year by the end of the year a little exhausting? Like who's having an epic year every single year? Also, I want to see the Venn diagram of super spreaders and people who said their year was epic because I feel like that's a circle. <laughs> I agree with Kaylee. I think the imbalance in the in the word choice makes this a not great use of polling. I do think there's like fun end of year value in being like, do some free word association with the year that we just had. But that would require like a, an open-ended question, which actually uh, USA Today and Suffolk asked in their own poll, something very similar to this, but they just were like, throw out whatever word you want. And there were some fun ones, like uh, train wreck was my favorite one for 2021. <laughs> but most people were just like, good, bad. Some people did say tired. I don't know, Galen, if you have the results of that poll handy. Yeah, so they were bucketed a little bit. The group that said awful, terrible, bad, sucked was 23%. Chaos, confusing, turmoil was 12%. Challenging, hard, rough was 11%. The the disaster, train wreck, catastrophe category was 6%. And that was tied with people who said it was good or okay. That's also 6%. All in all, just 14% of people in that poll offered adjectives that were positive. So that's kind of what you get when you ask people this open-ended question. But given that exhausting was offered to people, and it was the most chosen, well, most chosen alongside worrisome. Does that tell us anything about Americans? Like, is this such a bad use of polling that we should take nothing away from this? Or is this a bad use of polling? You might design it differently, but it is capturing something that is true of the broader public. I'd say the latter. I don't think it's a stretch to say that 2021 was exhausting for people. Um, and, you know, while I take Keeley's point that most years are exhausting and 365 days of going through your routine can be a lot, you know, I think there's obviously reason to think that 2021 was more exhausting than 2019 or, you know, 1975. But yeah, I, I think a slightly more honed instrument for measuring that might be called for. How would you do it? How do you get at this question of how Americans are feeling about the world around them? I think it's about engagement. So there was this 2018 poll from PRRI, which essentially asked the same question, you know, do Americans feel sad, angry, fearful about what's going on in the country today? And that poll, 69% said they felt sad, angry, and fearful, which is much higher than what Momenta found. But I thought what was interesting is that they then followed up that question to kind of ask respondents, well, what had they done about those feelings? finding that 19% of people had gotten in touch with an elected official, 14% had volunteered, 12% had gone to a community meeting. And I think that what you're seeing there is this disconnect between really extreme levels of high dissatisfaction with our current state of affairs, but a really low lack of engagement. And I think that's something we saw present in the 2020 election in the sense of like really high turnout, but not necessarily people feeling engaged and part of our political process. And I think that's what we want want polls like this to capture. And I just don't think like this poll is capturing that. There were a number of questions in this poll, and, and this was just one of them. They also asked, and this was more open-ended, what respondents would like to hear less about in 2022. So people said they were exhausted in the last year. Like, what would you like to put to bed? 35% said they would like to hear less about COVID. That was the number one thing that people said they would like to hear less about. Number two was that people would like to hear less about Trump. And those all ranked higher than people who said they would like to hear less about death, violence, lies, the media, all kinds of different things. Joe Biden, for example. Is that a good use of polling? And if so, what does it tell us? One thing that's been standing out to me with Omicron is I've seen a lot of daily news coverage reporting case numbers. And given the shifting context around Omicron and how contagious it is versus how severe it is, I don't know that the daily case counts are a useful metric anymore. And I, I chatted with Maggie, our science reporter, about this, and she concurred, so I, I feel like I'm not totally off base here. But I feel like as journalists, maybe we can take some cues from this. Like, obviously, people being tired of the news is not necessarily our problem, but there may be different approaches in what kind of information we're covering, what we're sharing, and what kind of context we're providing with it. And like I said, like daily case counts, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that information anymore. 
I think similarly, it's less clear maybe if it's a a good or bad use of polling. It's how Americans feel, but maybe Democrats don't want to run against Trump in 2022. You know, Biden has gotten some criticism for not going after Trump more directly in his rebukes. I'm thinking about his speech on the anniversary of January 6th, which was one of his most emphatic calls to action on the state of our democracy. But he still didn't mention Trump by name and a little bit of criticism again for that decision. But I think that's in part because Biden understands something that many in the media aren't still grasping. And that is that people are done with talking about Trump and want to move on, even those who maybe support or supported Trump, I think. Okay, I have a question. What are Americans saying when they say, I want to hear less about X or Y? Is it they want it to be less salient in the world? They just want the issue to kind of go away? Or they really just think the media should be covering it less, regardless of its place in the world? I think it's probably the first one, Galen. But I take your point that, like, what is this poll telling us that a more precise polling question wouldn't be able to tell us a little bit better? Does this just reflect the fact that Trump is unpopular and COVID obviously is also very unpopular? <laughs> the approval rating for COVID is just like in the tank. It's terrible. Yeah, man. It's uh, I, and I'm not feeling good about COVID's chances in the you know in the next presidential election. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I disagree, Nathaniel. I think that people. No, sorry, not about COVID. (laughs) COVID's popular. Nathaniel, have you looked at the polling lately? (laughs) I think people genuinely are criticizing the media here. I think that Mm. they think sometimes the media overcovers certain issues. It's hard for us, I think, to feel like we're overcovering something like COVID, which is a global pandemic that's killing people. But... Maybe there is some cues to take from that. I do think that's what people are saying. They they maybe want to hear about other things or they're seeing other issues happening in their communities or, you know, around them. And they're like, why aren't I reading anything about this? Why is it just more COVID case numbers? Yeah. Is there a certain point where maybe regardless of how important something is or how big of an impact it's had, people just don't have the capacity to focus on it or pay attention to it anymore and just want to move on? Yes, (laughs) I think so. I think that's something we have to balance as reporters. We have to keep that in mind. As much as we want everyone to have full capacity attention on everything that we think is important every single day, that's not a reality. And people, you know, can only consume so much news. I can only consume so much news and I work in this industry. So I think we have to keep that in mind as we're approaching these topics in our coverage. So whether these are good or bad uses of polling, and it sounds like both of them are kind of meh, Americans are getting more exhausted. If you just look at this poll across time, this Axios Momentum poll, 30% of Americans described 2018 as exhausting, and now it's 43%. And according to that follow-up question, maybe that exhaustion is particularly around COVID and Trump. Pew polling from 2019, as I mentioned at the top, suggested two-thirds of Americans were already worn out by the news cycle before COVID. You mentioned engagement, Sarah. What other impact does this have on our politics and how voters behave, the degree to which politics is functional, whatever? How does exhaustion play out politically? Yeah, so, you know, I touched on that poll earlier from PRI that kind of walked through the ways in which Americans are increasingly, like, not engaged with the community around them. And I think one's hypothesis for why, you know, polls in 2020 underestimated Trump and Republican support is because there is a growing segment of the American population that is more socially distanced from society. They're less likely to say they have close friends. They're more likely to say that they're not engaged in the community around them. And I think this is what we're seeing kind of borne out Um, in polls like this is this exhaustion is kind of creeping into how we're interacting with people around us. And I think that's shaping our politics in a way in which we are more tuned in to what is happening in some ways. Like, you know, we're tired of hearing about COVID. We're tired of hearing about Trump. Because as Kaylee and Nathaniel were saying, you can hear about that any day. You open up any front page of any online publication, and there it is, front and center. But I think the consequence of that is they're not trusting the political process in the same way, and they are losing faith in things changing. And I think we see that kind of reflected in the exhaustion, the languishing, and people kind of withdrawing from society, which again is kind of 
easy to do in the coronavirus era, right? You know, we only have screens to connect us. I suspect, too, that this could exacerbate the existing issue of division within the country. So not only am I exhausted and tired of having to wear a mask, now I'm mad at the people that are supportive of wearing masks or the people that are continuing to wear a mask. And they seem like my enemy now rather than just somebody who's making a different choice than I am. Yeah, I mean, I think about something like COVID denialism or less extremely just kind of being like, you know what, I've been masking up and socially distancing for a year and I'm just going to say screw it and go on with my life. I definitely could see that tying into the idea of of this politics of exhaustion and, you know, I'm tired of, of wearing a mask. I'm tired, you know, I don't want to have to get a booster shot every six months. So conveniently enough, last week, Charlie Sykes, an opinion writer at The Bulwark, a conservative publication which is opposed to Trump, wrote a piece titled Thoughts on Our Political Exhaustion. And he described four components of why people feel so exhausted with politics. The first was that there's simply too much news. The second is that political debate is often done in bad faith and ultimately just described political debate today as being, quote, stupid. The third was people feel like the questions are futile anyway because no one changes their mind and little happens. And then the fourth is that there's a general sense of pessimism about the future. Really grim, but do you think that's an accurate description of our politics? Why or why not? I think it's pretty accurate. I think the one point, though, about pessimism that I would push back on a little is I just don't think whether it's people predicting their chance of interacting with violent crime, if people should predict what's going to happen in the future. Like, we're just not good at that. I think a perfect example is there was a Gallup poll over the summer that was asking people about how optimistic they were for the future the country was headed in. And it was like 60% were like, yes, I'm. things are going well. And then what happens? The Delta variant. So I do think some of this is more fungible and moves more than we might anticipate it to move, because it feels intractable. These issues of polarization have been true for a while, but it's not as set in stone, I think, as it's easy to pontificate and write that it is. And I think people are really bad at understanding whether things are going to continue to get worse or if they might get better. Let's manifest that. 2022 is going to be a great year, everyone. (laughs) Positive thinking. The part of that piece that really stood out to me was the sort of bad faith arguing, which is something that covering disinformation really stands out to me and is something that both sides are very guilty of. I've been reading this book called Good Thinking by David Robert Grimes that's about how logical fallacies are like at the root of so many of our societal problems. And you see that in these bad faith arguments that are being made where we're not even talking about the same thing. We're not even arguing the same topics or coming at it with the same like set of facts. And that causes a lot of this division. I did, however, also see some criticism online that I thought was interesting that was basically like, imagine having the privilege to be exhausted by all this. Meaning like when some of these issues are impacting you directly, you are exhausted, but you can't just like sit back and be like, I can't care about this anymore. You have to care um, and you have to continue to be engaged. And it is a privilege to kind of be a pundit at your keyboard being like, oh, everybody's so tired of all this. Like that's, that's nice. But there are people that are genuinely affected by the issues that other people are kind of sick of. Wait, I get the sense that the people who are most exhausted are the intelligentsia and the kind of elites who pay a lot of attention to politics and care deeply about it in this particular way. Other people may be exhausted about like caring for children and dealing with at-home schooling and trying to figure out how to manage a family during a pandemic and, you know, inflation or whatever. But like, do our average Americans thinking about, oh, the stresses on democracy are exhausting. And like, when... Marjorie Taylor Greene makes a bad faith argument. I just feel like stressed out and pessimistic about the future of America. Like, I think it's elites who feel the specific kind of exhaustion. That's what I mean. And and I'm talking about the references you made as far as like dealing with that homeschooling, like people saying that they're tired of hearing about COVID, like they probably are tired of hearing about COVID, but they also have to literally deal with COVID every single day because their mm. kid's class got shut down again because three kids tested positive. You know, there's there's a gap there between the oh, sort okay. of- so we agree. Okay, I think we're saying the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I'll also make the point that like, if real life is exhausting, that also maybe pushes out 
politics for other people, people who maybe once upon a time would have been engaged, you know, going back to Sarah's point in politics, are now less engaged or taking shortcuts or just being like, well, the other side sucks instead of engaging with it more. That said, though, like, I don't think futility is uniquely privileged, elite point of view, right? I think you can more concretely be affected by what's happening in the world now and still feel that things are futile. It might mean that you're not necessarily following the discourse on January 6th with bated breath, but there can still be, I think, a pervading sense of you don't know what to trust in the media. You're too tired with your daily life to really care what's going on. Party, you know, X says this, party Y that. They don't seem to deliver on any of their promises. Like, I think that transcends the pundit class, if you will. Yeah. I've heard arguments that one of the ways to solve part of this is to engage more in debates with people who disagree with you and try to experience more of the world that isn't what you're so comfortable with. Is that realistic or true in any way? What's to be done about all of this if if this is indeed where we are or some version of where we are? I think that that would genuinely have a positive impact. I don't know if it's realistic to expect people to do that. I This is a weird credit to give, but I, I saw Aziz Ansari at the Comedy Cellar last month, and he had this bit about how everything is just like a little bit worse. Like every interaction, everything we do right now is like a little bit worse because of a million, you know, supply chain issues, COVID, you know, the great resignation, everything kind of adds up to make every experience like just kind of a little more exhausting than it would normally be. I got in a fender bender and I have to get my car fixed, but there's like a supply chain issue. So I have to wait to get the parts to fix my car. Like it's just stupid things that add up to making life more stressful. And I think when people are dealing with all of that, it's so much harder to you know, then come across a piece about how America is at risk of another civil war and, and have the capacity to really engage with those ideas. You're asking such a, a hefty question on a Monday morning, Galen. But I think... Oh, uh, yeah. Let's do it, guys. Let's solve America. <laughs> Let's do it. No, but I can't picture anymore the essay or the debate that sparks a good faith conversation. I think immediately when something comes out the door, you kind of already have a guess or a predisposition for what that person's politics might be. You understand what the counterpoints are. You see pieces that then espouse that. There's increasingly, I think, less of a arena and space for different viewpoints to debate each other and for that to be okay. You know, and I think part of that is exacerbated by the pandemic. I think it predates the pandemic. But it's hard to see how we have constructive debates about civil... And it goes back to what Kaylee was saying, too, about, like, some of the logical fallacies and people not operating from the same set of facts. And I do not see how we get to this point where we're back to the mid-1800s where persuasive arguments and, you know, debates were part of our discourse. I just, I think we're past that. We need to set up more salons and then everything will be solved. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I think we will leave things there to the 43% of Americans who say that the last year was exhausting. Touche, I hear you. Let's see if 2022 can be a little bit better. We are going to talk about 2022, but first we're going to say goodbye to our colleague Kaylee. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, guys. It was fun. And up next, we're going to talk to our colleague Jeff and Sarah and Nathaniel. Stick around. But first, Today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen? Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's look ahead to what 2022 has in store for the country politically, at least so far as we can tell at the beginning of the year. It's a midterm year, so this November, voters will decide control of both chambers of Congress, state legislatures across the country, and governor of 36 states. The midterms are generally seen as a referendum on the incumbent president, and as you can imagine from the conversation we just had, many Americans aren't particularly happy. But a year can be a long time in politics. So we're going to talk about where the political environment stands currently, the main political questions of the coming year, and how midterms usually go based on history. To discuss, elections analyst Jeffrey Skelly is joining us. Welcome, Jeff. Hey, Gail, and thanks for having me. It's great to have you as always. So Jeff, kick us off. What are the best indicators we have of the American political environment, and what do they tell us right now? Right. So I think A couple of the sort of obvious data points that we turn to when looking ahead is the president's approval rating, because there's a a decent correlation between where a president's approval is come election day for a midterm and how well or usually poorly his or her party does. And then another data point, which actually is, I would say, even more telling once you get to election day, is the generic ballot which we monitor both of these things. We have averages for both of these things on our website. The generic ballot asks respondents, do you plan to vote for the Democrat or the Republican in your local House election? And especially as you get up right before the election, that number tends to be pretty accurate in terms of figuring out just how things are going to go in the midterm election. Okay, so right now, according to our tracker, Republicans and Democrats are basically tied in the generic ballot. Republicans are at 42.5%, Democrats are at 42%. Meanwhile, when it comes to Joe Biden's approval rating, his disapproval rating is 52%, and his approval rating is 43%, so nine points underwater. Those are two pretty conflicting indicators. Does that seem accurate? What is going on? I mean, I think that's potentially accurate as of right now here, 10 months before the midterm election, um, in that a lot of generic ballot polling at this point is going to have a fairly sizable number of undecided voters because a lot of that polling is of registered voters right now. So, you know, as you get closer to the election, you get a better idea of what the likely electorate's going to look like and pollsters start asking likely voters. And in a midterm election where turnout is notably lower than in a presidential election, that likely voter makeup is is really important. So if you see a generic ballot poll that's got it like 39-39 right now, I mean, at the end of the day, the people who vote in the midterm, the share is going to break down to close to 100% for Democrats and Republicans. It's not going to be roughly around 80%. So it's understanding that there's a lot of time to go. A lot of people aren't necessarily tuned in to the election and also just that registered voter, likely voter thought, you know, you have to keep in mind when you're looking at polls this far out. Yeah. The other thing I'd flag there, too, is they're trending in a similar direction in the sense of Biden's approval rating hasn't bounced back. Democrats did have a lead in the generic ballot earlier in 2021. But, you know, now, as you said, Galen, it's roughly neck and neck. And Nathaniel can speak to this more. But if anything, we would expect, based on previous midterm election cycles, that the numbers will just get worse for Democrats and better for Republicans. 
Yeah, exactly. We've looked into this and in past midterm cycles, the generic ballot almost always gets worse for the president's party the closer you get to the election. And it gets worse at a higher rate if the president's party is Democrat. And that's likely because of the registered voter, likely voter disparity that Jeff identified. So likely voters tend to be a couple points more Republican than registered voters because Democrats are disproportionately these kind of groups that are less reliable about turning out. So think like young voters and people of color. When you compare these indicators to where they've been historically, how are the parties situated and how is the president situated compared to, you know, past presidents and parties? I mean, I think the top line numbers are not very good uh, for Biden and Democrats. He's well underwater in terms of net approval rating. So, you know, if you plug in the numbers for where he is now based on sort of where things have been historically, you know, you're looking at by far a big enough loss in the House to lose control because Democrats, you know, have a pretty narrow majority there. So it won't take very much for them to lose control. So what is it, 222 to 213, if there ever is a full House, there have been resignations. And so there's not actually 435 members there. But if you assign them based on which party would be likely to hold the seat in the couple vacant seats that are out there, Democrats, I think, can afford to lose four seats, which that's such a small number, such a small shift to switch control of the House that it wouldn't take very much. Even if Biden has a really good approval rating, uh, his party could very well lose much more than that just because midterms usually go poorly for the president's party, even when the president is relatively popular. But I guess I'm curious, is Joe Biden and the Democratic Party doing uniquely poorly for this point in a presidency? Or is this about how presidents are usually doing with the public? Yeah, Biden is definitely doing historically poorly. I think only Trump and maybe also Gerald Ford. I think that Ford was close, but but definitely Trump was the only president to have a worse approval rating than Biden at this point in his term. In terms of the generic ballot polling, I think it's pretty normal where it's been, in, especially with, in past years with a Democrat in the White House. I haven't done the numbers for like January of the year before the midterm, but I did do this analysis back in, I think it was November. And I found that, you know, the generic ballot at the time where Democrats were leading by a small amount was like pretty consistent with like cycles like 2010 and 2014, where Democrats also had like a two or three point lead in the generic ballot, like about a year before the election. And of course, what ended up happening was that Republicans gained several points and ended up doing well in those midterms. And then so far, we just don't really have a lot of special election results because that could be another good indicator in aggregate to kind of understand are Republicans overperforming in districts even where they don't win or are Democrats kind of doing better? You know, that was one big portion of sussing out that there was going to be a blue wave in 2018 was Democrats, even if they didn't win, were overperforming expectations. It's more of a split picture so far this year. I'm trying to think, Jeffrey Nathaniel, like other indicators that kind of help us see whether or not a red wave is kind of on the horizon. I think it's premature at this point to suss that out more. Yeah, I mean, the other one might be retirements, um, which is kind of a fuzzy one, because I think that says more about how politicians perceive the national environment, which isn't necessarily what the national environment is actually going to be, because politicians actually don't make very good pundits a lot of the time. Right now, there are a lot more Democrats retiring from Congress than Republicans, which I think reflects the belief that 2022 will be a good Republican year. So I don't think that's worth nothing to Republicans and to our chances of indicating November's results. To your point, actually, Sarah, the special elections, that I think more so than like the generic ballot, I think some Democrats are still looking at the generic ballot and being like, oh, it's tied. Like, you know, it might not be such a bad year after all. As we discussed, I think there are good reasons to think that that's going to get better for Republicans. The special elections, though, because that's been a wash, there haven't been that many of them, at least on the federal level. And there's still kind of time for Republicans to kind of notch a, a surprisingly strong performance, like maybe in the California 22nd special election, which just recently got scheduled for April. But that's one where you would expect Republicans to have already shown um, some overperformance. And I'll, of course, I'll be clear, like in Virginia and New Jersey, those weren't special elections, but Republicans did do well in those races. So maybe looking just at special elections isn't the right thing to do. But yeah, the special elections are, are the one thing that hasn't had terrible news for Democrats. Yeah, and I was just looking back at our generic ballot tracker for the 2018 cycle. And, you know, in January 10th, 2018, Democrats were leading 48.6% to Republicans, 37.9%. So, you know, in some ways, I think 
a lot of the indicators we have were just clear cut in that cycle than what we're currently seeing now. And maybe that goes back to some of the issues we saw in polls in 2020. But of course, you know, the 2018 polls were very accurate for a midterm cycle. So it's just kind of hard to understand how big of a blowout this could be or could not be. Yeah, that's interesting. The, the signal was so clear in 2018. The big elections that we have to look at, like New Jersey and Virginia, seem to have a clear signal, but then the generic ballot doesn't. So that's something we'll have to continue tracking and maybe do more reporting on and trying to understand why that is. I mean, I think it's kind of obvious why it was in 2018. I think Trump had no honeymoon. Basically, the first week he was in office, there were these mass protests. Like, I think the national mood turned very quickly against him and really calcified right at that level. Um, and that's why you saw basically from the beginning, special election results were really good for Democrats. The generic ballot was really good for Democrats. And I think Biden is more of a typical president in that he had a honeymoon. We're looking at more like a Obama situation where it started off popular and kind of began to slump gradually over the course of things. And that's why we're sliding into a Republican-leaning national environment the same way we did in 2010, rather than being jolted into one. Yeah. The only reason why I brought that up was because, you know, you had said earlier this idea that Biden's approval rating where it sits now is like historically bad, but we don't see as clear of signals in special elections, in the retirements at this point, and in the generic ballot. And I just, I hadn't really thought through that disconnect, honestly, as much. So I'm curious what's kind of contributing to that. I think that's certainly a fair point, Sarah, but I would also point out that Biden's approval rating isn't as bad as Trump's was. Sure. And just because like special elections happened over the course of 2021. And so we have some from later in the year, but some from earlier in the year. And so they're going to naturally kind of factor in some of these when the environment wasn't so bad for Democrats. That said, yeah, looking forward, like there's actually a special election tomorrow in Florida and it's in a very blue seat. So I'm not sure there's going to be much to tell us. But I would expect Republicans to start overperforming in special elections from now on. And in fact, I would have expected it a couple of months ago. And that's, I think, what I'm going to be looking for more. And if Democrats continue to do OK, then maybe that's a good sign for them. But I, to be clear, I still think that most of the indicators are bad for them. And that's still the, the smarter bet is, is against Democrats. Yeah. And I think something else to sort of keep in mind just to that Trump-Biden difference is that Trump's approval rating – in like the time of the December special election for Alabama Senate race was like 36, 37%. And so if Biden's at around 42, maybe 43%, you know, that's still a pretty significant difference. So I, I think perhaps the fact that we're getting not a signal that would suggest that Republicans are going to do well in the midterm election, but not one that is so just clear cut as leading into the 2018 midterm at this point makes some sense given that. And I think it's also worth remembering, though, that and sort of gets at what we were talking about with the generic ballot polling, is that there's sort of a cyclical nature to presidential approval, where you sort of start out higher, though we know that you don't necessarily start out as high anymore as you used to. And then you slide to some extent, and you may not actually see your approval rating as a president start to tick up again until it's your own reelection campaign going on. So that's like the challenge for Biden and Democrats is that historically you wouldn't expect for his approval rating to jump back up. But of course, we don't know what's going to happen between now and November. You know, something could happen that could help Biden out. Maybe COVID gets under better control. Maybe the economy improves in some way where people are feeling it more. I mean, it's, it's difficult to say, of course, and that's definitely a, a glass half full picture for Democrats to imagine those things could work out because it could also get worse, of course. Um, and in that case, Biden could be heading for a really bad November. To put years like this in more historical context, when we say that the president's party usually has a bad midterm, what do we mean? How bad exactly and how reliable is that rule? Well, I mean, if you really want to stretch it back, since like 1900, there have been three times where the president's party has actually gained seats in the House in a midterm election. So that's 1934, the first midterm in the New Deal, and then 1998 and 2002. Of course, those two more recent examples would lead you to believe, well, maybe maybe there's an opportunity here for Biden. But you know, I also think those are pretty special cases, all three of them, because you had very popular presidents. George W. Bush in 2002 was coming off of 9-11 and having had like the highest 
recorded approval rating ever just after that. And while it had been a little over a year since then, he still had an approval rating north of 60%, uh, which is very, very good uh, for a president heading into his midterm election. Similarly, in 1998, with Bill Clinton, the Monica Lewinsky trial and everything, his approval rating actually had gone up and was north of 60%. And I think there was a, a view that Republicans sort of overdid it trying to impeach him, and there was sort of a backlash against them in the end. But we're also talking about, in the cases of Bush and Clinton, single-digit gains for their party. So it's not like their party went out and won like 25, 30 seats. And when you think about the average loss for a House midterm for president's party being about 26 seats, that's with those gains included. So a lot of other cycles have gone much more poorly for the president's party. Yeah. I'll note also, though, that the trend is less certain in the Senate. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that it's kind of random which group of states are up in the Senate. So, you know, some groups of states are very favorable to Republicans and others are more neutral. Um, There aren't any anymore that are good for Democrats. But so, for example, since World War II, there have been 19 midterms. And in four of those, the president's party actually gained Senate seats. And in two of them, they kind of stayed even. So I think while history very clearly indicates that Democrats are going to lose the House in 2022, I think there is still some kind of historical question about whether they can hold on to the Senate. So that, I think, is the silver lining for Democrats. How many of the previous midterms were like over the average, more like the shellacking of 2018? Like, how common is that? So let's see. So the the average since World War II is 26 House seats. So I'm counting 2018, 2010, 2006, 1994, 1982, 1974, 1966, 1958, 1950, and 1946. So that's 10 out of 19 that are above average, which makes sense, about half. Okay. And that's in part because it's like the first midterm of an incumbent in your presidential tenure, you've already lost a lot of the seats that might have come with a backlash? Mm. Maybe. I think that was certainly the case for like Obama, for instance. But I mean, remember, presidents lose re-election sometimes, or maybe they'll have a, a big re-election like Nixon did in 72. And then, you know, there is a lot of ground left for you to lose. So obviously, the 74 midterms were particularly bad for Republicans. That was the Watergate year. So I'm not sure that's necessarily why. It plays into it sometimes. Okay, so this is what the historical data says. I think listeners of this podcast are probably pretty familiar with this. A good reminder at the beginning of a midterm election year. What do we know about why this happens? We all refer to, oh, backlash against the president. But what does that mean? Why is there always a backlash against the president? And what does it look like when you get into the details of the data? I mean, it seems like there are a couple things going on uh, in all likelihood. Um, and this is based on a lot of political science research that's out there. And we see this perhaps even more today because things are very polarized You sort of have two camps and not a huge number of people in the middle of those two camps. You get the idea of differential turnout, which is the idea that in the 2022 midterm election with a Democrat in the White House, your average Republican voter is more likely to show up to vote than your average Democrat controlling for everything else because your average Republicans just really ticked off at the status quo. And we saw the reverse of this in 2018 when Democrats obviously turned out at higher levels uh, because they were unhappy with the status quo with Donald Trump in the White House. So that's something that's talked about a lot. It's sort of the, you know, turnout matters kind of idea and turnout always matters to some extent. But there's probably something else that's going on that's even more important, especially when you consider how polarized things are now is that there is a small but significant group of people who tend to switch their vote. Maybe they voted for Joe Biden in 2020, but may well vote for a Republican for the House in 2022. And if you think about just sort of the basic math of this, that's not only a vote gained for Republicans, that's also a vote lost for Democrats because you're flipping them if it's like a, you know, a fairly likely voter, whereas turning out one extra Republican is only worth plus one. That whole shifting of voters, you know, in the middle to some extent, can be a really pivotal part of why you almost always see this backlash in midterms. It really does seem as if our politics swing like a pendulum, like Nathaniel, Jeffrey were saying that earlier. And, you know, just as soon as one party's in power, you know, and they start doing the messy job of governing, public opinion turns against them. 
When I was asking about the parties where they've really suffered huge losses as in 2018, and I was just looking again at that data and, you know, 2010, obviously, when Democrats were in power, really stands out when they lost more than 60 seats. I'm curious, though, we know that this trend of the president's party in the White House does poorly. And we've talked about this in previous podcasts as well, particularly when we were talking about the Virginia gubernatorial election. But it's kind of unpacking the reasons for like what differentiates a midterm loss that's more close to the average of the 26 seats versus these really big blowout years and some of the factors leading there. Because that does strike me as we know that things kind of will swing this way, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be looking more at some of the underlying reasons that contribute to it. Yeah. And like, for instance, we know that in general, and there are certainly exceptions to this, but in general, when the president's approval rating is worse, they lose more House seats. Uh, So I think just simply voters reacting to how the president is doing is a part of it. But I also think that clearly there are other factors such as, you know, just maybe how many vulnerable seats are up and and redistricting can factor into that as it will this year. So, you know, it would be worth looking more in depth at at some of these extreme cases like 2010 and, and 2018. I suspect there are a combination of factors, but those are definitely a few. I mean, you could think about the 2010 midterms, for example, with Democrats losing so many seats in the House and you know, there were a lot of Democrats who who represented turf that John McCain had won uh, in 2008. In the South, particularly, there were still a, a fair number of Democrats in, in red-leaning seats, and they got wiped out uh, in the 2010 midterms for the most part. Um, so I, I think that sort of gets at the idea Nathaniel was talking about with vulnerable seats. And so when you think about 2022, redistricting is going on this time around. So we're still sort of getting the lay of the land in terms of where things are going to stand in terms of which party might benefit the most from that. But it does look like it's not going to really shake things up all that much uh, in terms of which party will benefit. But I do think that there's a decent chance that for Democrats compared to the 2010 example, will not have nearly the same number of members who are representing seats that maybe lean Republican at their baseline. There's just not going to be nearly as many seats like that. So maybe that actually narrows the band of potential outcomes to some extent, although, again, Democrats have a very narrow majority, so it's not going to take much for them to lose it in the House. Yeah, maybe it's worth noting that the two biggest midterm losses since World War II have been in 2010 and 1994, and those are both Democrats suffering those losses, and those are kind of the two big years. I think 1994 was one of the big years in the South's realignment from Democratic-leaning to Republican-leaning, and then, as Jeffrey mentioned, 2010, I think, was kind of the last gasp for some of those members, kind of the the last blue dog Democrats who had really held on in places like the South. 2010 was basically when they were eliminated. You all mentioned that redistricting is one remaining open question for the politics of the coming year, although as the picture becomes clearer, it looks like it it may not have a big impact in terms of changing the status quo. What other open questions remain? We have so much history and data to look at to tell us how this year might go, but what are the unknowns? So it's interesting. The economy plays a big role in presidential elections. Nate has talked about this before. It's a bit more mixed in a midterm cycle in terms of its importance. However, we're at a really high point right now for inflation. And so if that were to continue in issues with the supply chain related to the coronavirus, does that affect voters more than it has historically in other elections? You know, you could see that playing out. I think one thing that is kind of a point of consternation, and again, when we were looking at all the various indicators It's not really clear cut that it's like a, you know, huge red wave election. But I think a point of consternation is there's been this anti-democratic drift within the GOP. There's been these efforts to kind of talk about possibilities of overturning elections, how to give state legislatures more control. And yet it looks like it'll be a good election year for them. And I think particularly those of us in the media maybe struggle with that disconnect of how can voters openly back this if a party's increasingly more liberal. So I'm really curious on this anti-democratic drift that we're seeing at play in the GOP. How does that continue to shape 2022? Does it make it an even better year for Republicans than anticipated? Is there no relationship at all? Or is it something that maybe tampers the gains that they would have made otherwise? Yeah, I think another obvious one is is just COVID. You know, I think maybe the one thing that could save Democrats is if the pandemic disappears or goes to a 
low point. That seems like something that could actually move Biden's approval rating. You know, we also have a tracker for tracking his approval specifically on the issue of the pandemic. And you saw that decline right in tandem with his own approval rating. So if the pandemic gets better, you could see that increase. And, and if there is a causal relationship there, you could see his overall approval rating increase. And then maybe Democrats don't lose as many seats or don't lose any. Maybe I, I doubt that. But I do think that you know, kind of in keeping with the fact that it has to be these broader trends, macro things, things that are generally out of the campaigner's control that are going to determine the result of 2022 more so than anything that healthcare related messaging that Democrats decide to air. Yeah, I think one way I've sort of looked at this is COVID and related issues like inflation and supply chain and sort of kitchen table stuff. You could group COVID in with like kitchen table in a way. As long as that's hanging over everything, it's sort of difficult to see a path for Democrats to really see a, a market improvement in their, their current standing and Biden's standing. But if there were to be an improvement in those areas, maybe that opens up more space for voters to pay attention to things like the illiberal trend within the GOP, decisions by the Supreme Court. like. Maybe that leaves more room for those things to actually sort of reach voters because there's more maybe there's more room even in the media to pay attention to them because, you know, there's not as much concern about COVID and inflation and other things like that. But as long as those really key kitchen table things are sort of hanging out there and affecting people's lives, it's more difficult for those other points of conversation to really enter into the picture, I think. No, I think that's a really good point. I do think, though, it will be interesting whether it is the Republicans who voted to impeach Trump and how they do for those that haven't, you know, already called it quits, like what happens in those races? And then more broadly, what you're seeing within the GOP is this divide of candidates like Youngkin in Virginia kind of running who are Trump adjacent, but not really trying to tie themselves too closely versus someone like Mehmet Oz, Dr. Oz, running now in Pennsylvania for that Senate seat, who is very clearly trying to tie himself to Trump's legacy and make America great again. I think, Jeffrey, you're that's a really smart point that there might not be oxygen for Americans to really grapple with the liberalism when they're at the ballot box if their paycheck is hurting week to week. But I, I am curious for what that shift and how that plays out in 2022. All right. Well, lots of historical precedent to rely on in terms of understanding this year and still some remaining questions. I think that's a good place to leave things. We will, of course, be covering all of this over the coming year. But for now, thank you, Sarah, Nathaniel and Jeff. Thanks, Galen. Thanks, Galen. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigari Curtis is on audio editing. I'd also like to welcome our new intern, Emily Vanezki. We are very happy to have you. Welcome. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. 